Well, good morning. Welcome again to Christ the King. It's good to be with you all. For those of y'all who don't know me, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and it's good to get to, uh, to preach the word to you all, to go through God's word together. Um, the song that we sang right before the passing of the peace, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go, I remember I first heard that song when I was in high school. I got to do work crew with Young Life at Frontier Ranch. And in uh, that particular summer, the musical guest was, uh, was Sandra McCracken, um, who had who'd recently, I guess that actual summer, had gotten married to Derek Webb. And uh, for the first time ever in Young Life, we sang hymns um, because they were the ones who were adamant about doing it, and they sang that hymn. And it was the first time I'd ever heard it. And from that point on, it's, it's almost as if the, the love that will not let me go as we sang that hymn uh, that hymn would not let me go. Um, that in the midst of my weariness, in the midst of whatever we were going through, those words have stuck with me. Um, and so I pray as we sing those types of songs here at Christ the King, as we uh, engage God's word, that his love will not let you go no matter what you are going through right now. No matter how weary you may feel, no matter maybe how joyful you may feel with the turning of the new year, hopefully you aren't putting all of your hope in the fact that 2021 is going to be wholly different than 2020 um, because I'm afraid it may be a little bit similar. But, um, but nonetheless, I pray that you would feel and know God's love that will not let you go. So as we consider that, let's turn now to God's word. This morning we're going to be uh, in John chapter 1, looking at mainly one verse, but we're going to read a few verses uh, from verse 10 through 14. So if you would, please read with me now. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us your word. Father, we thank you that the word has become flesh. Father, as we consider this together this morning, we pray, send your spirit to be with us, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ring Around the Rosie. I would imagine that many of y'all know uh, uh, that, that little rhyme, that nursery rhyme, and, and uh, maybe some of you children who are here uh, have sung it uh, in class as well. Um, it, this is a popular nursery rhyme that actually is about a pretty ominous uh, subject matter. It is about the Black Death. It is about the bubonic plague of the 14th century. Ring around the rosy is about the circular red rash that would appear upon your skin from the plague. The pocket full of posy was a superstitious idea that somehow by carrying 
flowers in your pockets that you could maybe ward off the, the, the disease. Ashes, ashes is in reference to the fact that the bodies kept piling up and up and there was no way to deal with them except by cremation. We all fall down. Almost everyone who got the plague died. It's a reminder of, of our own mortality in the midst of all of this. The Black Death of the 14th century in Europe was ravaging the countryside. In fact, anywhere from 33 to 66% of the population, that's what most estimates, uh, scholarly estimates uh, were, were saying, anywhere from 33 to 66% of the population of Europe perished because of the plague. Now imagine for a minute that you were there. Imagine the fear that you would have felt as neighbors and family members all around you were getting that red rash on their skin and within a matter of days were dying. It's probably easier for us to imagine right now than it would have been even a year ago at this time given our own circumstances, but our current pandemic and our current circumstances pale in comparison to what was going on at that time. One eyewitness account of the circumstances in Europe wrote this about it. He said, this disease had implanted so great a terror in the hearts of men and women that brothers abandoned brothers, uncles their nephews, sisters their brothers, and in many cases, wives deserted their husbands. But even worse, and almost incredible, was the fact that the fathers and mothers refused to nurse and assist their own children as though they did not belong to them. The fear was so great during the plague that, that not only were citizens abandoning their fellow citizens and their neighbors, but fathers and mothers were abandoning their own children, their own families. The fear of the plague drove people away, right? You know, in normal times, in all sorts of times like this, yes, kings sequestered off in castles, the rich would leave the cities and go out into the countryside. But this plague was so bad that family members tried to flee. They tried to flee those who were sick and in fear of coming down with the, with the disease themselves. So in the midst of, of Europe's greatest struggles, everyone was fleeing. Almost no one was entering in. Given our own context, we find ourselves with a very similar temptation. Right, certainly safety dictates some level of distance that we're trying to keep from one another, as even our passing of the peace probably demonstrated. I imagine many of you weren't going for the full-on front hug uh, during that period. Right? Yes, there's some aspect of safety and seclusion that we need, but how do you react in public when someone coughs around you? Maybe more than once. Right? Do you hold your breath as you pass by? Do you give them a little bit more space than you did a little bit before? Right? And that's just based on a cough only. But the challenges of this last year have made it harder for any of us to want to engage with each other whether they be sick with COVID or whether they're struggling with something else because we flee in all kinds of circumstances. Are you disengaging from your friends who are going through marital trouble? Does it feel like too much to reach out to those who are grieving lost ones? 
Isn't it just easier to worry about your own issues than to check on your friends or your family who are, who are struggling during this time or who have financial or work trouble in particular? Our temptation in the midst of this pandemic, but in the midst of all hardship, is, is to flee, to disengage, to pull back. Right? We're, we're tempted to flee when things get hard. We want to escape to the countryside like kings of the 14th century did for an easier and a safer life. Or we want to lock ourselves in our well-provisioned castles, taking up new hobbies right? and, and living the good life so that we're not bothered by others. When suffering and pain somehow manages to make it through those walls that we've erected, we find often that our neighbors and our friends are too, too busy, too sick with their own lives and struggles to even begin to notice our own pain. We feel lonely in the midst of it. But after we talk about all of this, I, I mentioned all of this sadness to make this particular point. Our God is different. In the midst of our sin, distress, and our mess, He enters in. He entered in in the most dramatic of ways. He became one of us. He became truly with us. And that's what this passage reminds us of this morning, that Jesus has changed everything. When all others have fled or would have fled, he entered in. And that changes how we are even now to live. And so this morning, we're going to look at this in two particular ways. First, we're going to look at Jesus' incarnation. And then second, our response with our ministry of incarnation. So his incarnation and then our response in the ministry of incarnation. So let's first look at his incarnation. Jesus came during a challenging time for the Jewish people. There had been 400 years of silence uh, from God to the Jewish people. God who had spoken through the prophets and, and, and come to be with his people hadn't spoken to them in over 400 years. And yet also during that period of time, they were a ruled and conquered people. For our sake, let's imagine that time period, right? That, that, that 400 years is essentially the equivalent of the establishment of Jamestown in Virginia to present-day United States. Imagine all that has taken place from that period to now. 400 years of silence. 400 years of being ruled by others. And so there was this growing sense that that maybe a savior was going to come. There was an expectation that God was going to do something. But they believed that the blessing that God was going to send with his Messiah would depend upon their faithfulness. So they, they rigidly became, began keeping, trying to keep God's law. So they put extra precautions around some elements of it. Right? They were going to keep the Sabbath in particular ways by not allowing certain types of work, uh, not allowing certain amounts of, of footsteps even, right? Imagine uh, in many ways uh, using your step calculator um, to, to have a limit rather than to try to get to 10,000 steps. You're limited to 500 or else somehow you've done more work on the Sabbath than you were allowed to. They were very careful with their set-apartness. 
trying to remain ritually clean in all circumstances. So whether you touched someone who was sick, you needed to then go find some sense of purification. So they acted and they believed that God would enter in, but God would only enter in if they kind of cleaned up everything around them, if they behaved rightly. Before they could be saved, they needed their environment to be more habitable. It was almost like inviting a dinner, a guest over for a dinner party. You needed to clean everything up in the living room and in the den, and so you kind of just throw everything into a back closet or into a back room to make it all look a little nicer than it is. Not that we've ever done any of that or that you all have ever done any of that, right? There's a, 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 a sense in which that's the attitude that's going on here. Is that what we expect of how God enters our world and our life? That we must get to work on bettering ourselves and then, then God will show up. And this type of attitude demonstrates something off. Either one of two ways. Either we have completely missed our sinfulness or the brokenness of the world around us or we've arrogantly believed that we actually have fixed the problems in our own heart or the problems around us. So even though the Jewish people of the first century wanted to clean themselves up, their context and their culture is really no better and no different than our own. We see ourselves in it. It was full of sickness, decay, fighting, sin. Yet John says the word became flesh. Jesus still enters into that. John uses this word. He uses the word in two different ways, and we're going to talk about those two different meanings this morning. First is he uses it to talk about God's revealing himself, his revelation of who he is. And the second is about his relationship to us. Let's talk about the revelation, the word as God's revealing himself. Though the word at that point was, <clears throat> though the world at that point was not uniquely sinful or uniquely broken, as we just talked about, John teaches us that something unique and different was actually going on here. God has acted in a way that he has never done before, and he will never do again. He has revealed himself fully in the person of Jesus. Yes, God had revealed himself in small ways before, but he had never done anything like this. He had never done anything like the incarnation. God created by his word. God interacted with his creation through his word. God had done all of this by his word up to the first century. God had spoken to his people. He had enacted judgment and mercies upon them. He'd even been with them representatively through, through the, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle or the temple. But up to this point, it was almost as if God was interacting uh, with his people like through that kind of that awkward um, LinkedIn person or connection that you get. Uh, they, they, you know them sort of, but maybe only through LinkedIn. You've seen a picture, you know what they do, um, and maybe you've even done a little bit of business together, but you've never actually met face to face. You don't really know who they are. But John tells us that the word became flesh. 
God had revealed himself in the most personal way. He'd stepped through the creator-creature gap to show us who he is and to be in relationship with you and with me. He didn't merely continue to to, to slip into the DMs, so to speak, or or, or to to, to write our social media updates. No, he joined your family to pursue you. And the implications for this are enormous. John is telling us that by knowing the word made flesh, by knowing Jesus himself, we know God himself. There's no mystical secret sauce that we need to know to better understand who God is. There's no greater divine intervention that will reveal who God is other than Jesus himself. The verb that John uses here for dwell, right? It says the word came to dwell with us. The word here for dwell has a double meaning. Right? It's, it's a reference to the Old Testament tabernacle, thus helping us to draw a connection to God's meeting place with man earlier. But it's also, and this is, this is nerd alert, it's a cognate of one of the Hebrew words for glory. Why do I bring that up? Well, in essence, we learn that Jesus, the Word made flesh, is God's shouting from the rooftops. It is His divine intervention. It is His glorious revelation of who He is to the world. If we want to know what God is like, we don't look for Him in the mountains, we don't look for him in the skies or in massively amazing things like earthquakes. We look for him in Jesus. We know who God is in relationship with Jesus. How does that strike you? Does that thought sound crazy to you? Are you sitting there thinking, yeah, Taylor, but I I know I can get to know God through Jesus? I'd much prefer him showing up to me in a burning bush. That's the kind of divine intervention I really want God to show up for me right now. I need for him to be like that. I'd rather him come to talk to me in a dream than show up like Jesus. Does that way of God revealing himself maybe feel more miraculous to you in some ways? If so, then the unbelievable nature of God becoming a man the immortal taking on mortality, the creator becoming a creature, all of those things haven't hit you properly enough yet. The fullness of God has come to us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, and this is gonna sound crazy, you know more of God than Moses did on Mount Sinai. In Jesus Christ, you know more of God than Jacob did as he wrestled with him in the nighttime. In Jesus Christ, you have seen and know more of God than Isaiah did as he was caught up into heaven, the heavenly throne room with God himself. The word became flesh and God is revealed to us. But secondly, the word also demonstrates God's relationship with us. God has always been personal. He has spoken personally with his people. He has been with his people in the tabernacle and in the temple. 
But God becoming flesh is a new kind of personal, right? This is a new kind of interaction with his people. John says that Jesus came to his own. That's the phrase that he uses uh, in this passage. He came to the Jewish people, right? To the family of Abraham, to this special family that God promised long ago that he was going to bless and through this family he was going to bless the whole world. Can you imagine? Jesus became like them. Jesus took on the Jewish language. He spoke Hebrew and he spoke Aramaic. Imagine Jesus took on the Jewish customs. He celebrated their festivals, the festival of Purim and the festival of Sukkot. He ate Mediterranean food. His breath would have smelled of olives at times. Imagine all of that. God, the God of the universe who knows all things, who knows all cultures, didn't pick and choose the greatest customs of each and every culture like we do, picking cuisine on Westheimer, a little bit of Vietnamese one night, a little bit of Mexican another night, right? Just making it all what we would want. No, God entered in fully to the Jewish culture, became like them. He also didn't come into this world blasting the Jewish people saying, well, you know what? You need to be a little bit more like the Romans or a little bit more like the Americans who are coming centuries later. If you were a little bit more like them, then maybe I wouldn't have been so silent for 400 years. No, God doesn't do that at all. He truly became one of them, not above them, not not next to them, but with them. He entered into their mess. He enters into your mess. He enters into my mess. Yes, he came to the people of promise as one of them, but he also came, as the passage says, to all who believed. Jesus became a part of the family of God so that the family of God might grow beyond mere bloodlines. This means that he's with you He's with me. He enters into our mess, our struggles. Everything that you are going through right now, Jesus is with you in it. Through Jesus' incarnation, the promise is no longer about no longer about who your dad is. It's no longer about who your family is. It's not about the nation that you happen to be born into or the language that you speak or how obedient you are. God's promise is for all who believe. That's true in Jesus. Our God does not treat us as we treat others in a pandemic. He's not afraid. He doesn't use his power to create a wall or to self-protect. He's not kept his distance, but he's entered into our world. And his entrance, it's not merely some sort of time-bound, one-and-done, a few decades-long incarnation. He he didn't merely attend this this short-term service project of rescuing some of God's people to then go back to the safety of the heavenly realm uh, a, a short time later. No, God has, from the birth of Jesus until the end of time, become one of us. Jesus is still now in the flesh 
He's in the resurrected flesh, but Jesus is still in the flesh nonetheless. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he was resurrected from the dead, but he did not cease to be a man. God, the second person of the Trinity, is God, but he still remains man forever. Have you ever thought about that? He is entered in that we might know God, to be in relationship with God, and to be saved from our sin, our distress, even our death. And it's in relationship with him and as he himself was sent that we are sent out then into the world. And that leads to our second point, our ministry of incarnation. If we read later on in John's gospel, particularly in chapter 20, Jesus commissions his disciples. We often know of the Great Commission as as coming from Matthew's gospel, but there's also one in John's gospel. It's a little bit different, but John, uh, John records this commission this way. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We, like the disciples, are a sent people out into the world. We, like the disciples, though, are sent, what? As Jesus was sent. We're to follow his pattern, follow his pattern of incarnation. In many ways, uh, that, that phrase, kind of incarnational ministry, you may have heard this before, and, and sometimes it can be used, um, used the wrong way. It can be used to say that we are somehow to replicate Jesus' incarnation, that somehow his miraculous one-time event in history um, is is maybe replicable by us, and that is far from the point. In many ways, they also will say it as, as if somehow we are to be Jesus to other people, to be his mouthpiece as we proclaim the good news or to be his hands and feet as we serve others. And certainly, if that's what's being talked about with incarnational ministry, then, then that's, that, that's gone too far and that's wrong. Because the emphasis on any form of ministry should not be our own effort, but it should be on our response to God and his word as we are transformed by it. But the incarnation of Jesus Christ is irreplicable, right? But it is also a pattern for how we are to engage. We are to be sent as Jesus was sent. We're to emulate him. We're to humble ourselves. We too are to relate to others as we talked about the word in relationship and the word in revelation. We are to do both of those things. So let's first talk about what it looks like for us to relate to others. To follow Jesus' model here is to learn to relate to others on their ground. That doesn't mean that you cease to be who you are. No, you're very much still supposed to be exactly who you are in Christ. But it at least means these three things. That first, you are to pursue someone. you Ask them to lunch. Talk to them on the phone. Although I guess that's a little bit weird nowadays. Maybe send them a text message then. Right? Or, or at least walk up to them. 
in the park, in your neighborhood, at work. Stop waiting on them to pursue you. That's hard. We want to be pursued. That's first. Second, it also means showing an interest in them. What are some of the things that they like to do? What are some of the things that they're good at? What are some of the things that they struggle with, etc.? Do you know these things about your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors? If not, show an interest. Get to know them. And third, we are to be like Jesus in the sense that we are to empathize with them in joy and in sorrow. We need to understand why someone feels the way that they do and then to begin to feel it alongside of them. Pursuing others is not something that's merely reserved for the extroverted. Showing empathy is not for those only who are good at it. Showing interest is not only for those who are inquisitive. All of these things are things that we are called to do. We are to be sent as Jesus was sent. With our own gifts, in our own ways. After our our youngest daughter, Mary Margaret, uh, was born almost uh, five years ago now, my, my wife, Juliana, had taken a job as a teacher at a local high school. It was her first year of teaching, and for any of you teachers, you know that the first year of teaching is often your hardest year of teaching. It was also our first year as a family of five, um, and and trying to both work at the time, trying to both uh, get our our kids um, cared for during that time, we were were in a fog. and, and, and we, we developed some really close relationships here at Christ the King through some of our community groups that we led and, and through different things like that. And so as we had kind of disengaged in the midst of our own fog, we had a family come up to us and say, well, where are you guys? We don't see you much anymore. We'd love to hang out. Well, th- that seemed to, to feel like, ah, oh, there's no way we can do this. Right, that, that's, that's one more thing on top, of, uh, on top of everything else, and there's no way that we can do this. But what they said next changed everything. So we'd love to hang out. Why don't we bring a meal over to you guys? It wasn't the most amazing act that happened. It wasn't the most amazing thing that ever did, but it's something that we will never forget. It spoke wonders to us. That they were willing to enter our mess. Right? They were willing to help us both when we needed to be helped. Incarnational ministry at its core means that we show up, even if we don't think that we're good at it, even if we don't want to do it, even if it might feel uncomfortable or embarrassing or exhausting, or maybe at times relationally dangerous, or maybe even physically dangerous. When someone is hurting, when someone is laid off, when life gets hard, We need to be people who show up. We're to be present with a letter or a phone call or maybe physically right when someone has lost a loved one. We're to be present to watch one of our neighbors as as he or she needs to just get away from their kids for a few minutes and have a shower. Go and help them watch their children for a few moments. Or to be present with a meal and a conversation when one of our single friends hasn't talked to anyone 
other than through Zoom or in line at the grocery store. We're to show up, have a meal, have a conversation. But secondly, we are to reveal Jesus. We are to point others to Jesus. In our interaction with others, through our words and our deeds, we are to point others to the love of Christ. This means that we don't just get to interact with people however we might wish. Incarnational ministry doesn't mean just playing one-on-one basketball with somebody else just because you like to do that. Or maybe pick whatever it is that you might like to do. No, it means revealing who Jesus is. For those in our life who need hope, we are to point them to the hope of the world. For those in our life who have no direction, we are to point them to the way, the truth, and the life. For those in our life who are struggling in darkness, we are to point them to the light of the world. And when we fail, when we fail in our incarnational ministry task, which we will do, which Lord knows for those of you who've been involved in this church and been a part of me ministering here and the other pastors here at Christ the King, we all fail to minister in this way. Maybe right now you're sitting there thinking, yeah, Taylor, I wish you'd been a little bit more like that. And that's fair. We are to minister incarnationally, but we fail. And when we do, we are to look back to Jesus, our consistent pursuer. We're to remember that his love will not let us go as we have just sung earlier and as we will sing again. We are to know that he is with us in all things. Even when we're in despair, even when we fail to follow him, even when we struggle to empathize with others or to care to relate to others, even in all of our sin, Jesus is saying again and again and again, I am with you, follow me. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you are not absent, but that you have entered in. You've entered into our lives, into our mess. And we pray, Father, that we would do the next thing. That we would give our life and our mess over to you, knowing that you are with us and that you care for us. Father, we pray that we would trust in you. Father, I pray for all of those who are here who are hurting. I pray, Lord, that they would find comfort in you, the great comforter. I pray for all of those who are in our midst who have no hope. Lord, that we would find hope in you. And Father, I pray that we would leave this place being the hands and feet of Jesus, not in our own strength, but through your Spirit. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.